Well, if you've ever uh, been in the place of having to speak on Easter, you know there's just always just seems like way too much to talk about regarding Easter. And it feels like the normal thing to do is to talk about Easter in sort of an apologetic sense, you know, to talk about how it's, it's an argument for the reality and the, the truth of the Christian faith. And of course, Easter properly has that sort of function. But this morning, I wanna help us focus on a discipleship aspect of the resurrection by giving our attention to the question that's asked in our reading this morning, and that is, who will roll away the stone? I think that question invites us to ask further, more penetrating questions such as, who's in charge of the world? And are we a part of some sort of unfolding story? And if so, who's the author of that story? It might make us wonder, is there anyone who's really designing and assuring outcomes? Or maybe the more philosophical amongst us might ask, does history have any sort of telos, which means sort of a purposeful end? Is is this all going somewhere? And I wanna suggest this morning that you don't have to be a philosopher for a word like telos to be important. I think that actually telos, that is the sense of, of both history and my life and all the aspects of history moving towards some purposeful end is actually essential to Christian spirituality. If you just think of telos as meaning something like the end to which all things are meant to relate, you might think of words like design or aim or purpose or plan or the story of God. And the reason I think this is important is that without that, without something that's like a bullseye that we're trying to hit, we don't really have a very good basis for reflection. We can't really reflect well on the past. It makes it very difficult to critique present ethical decisions. Now, I just want you to think of your life as you presently know it. You know, in your family, in Orange County, in Southern California, in California, in the United States, in the Western world, a part of this whole globe, just think of your world as you actually know it and just begin to wonder how things might be different if people were making ethical decisions based on some sort of alignment with what God is up to on the earth. See, it's only a telos, it's only the sense that God is up to something that can orient our present and our future life, which is meant to be, to be with God in the new heavens and the new earth as his cooperative friends. So for instance, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and we're breaking into the middle of a paragraph here, but he says, then comes the end, and that's that Greek word telos, the end when the kingdom will be fully expressed. Or the revelation of John says, you know, at the end of Revelation chapter 21, where he's envisioning the new heavens and the new earth, he, he has Jesus saying, it is done. And that's a very interesting Greek term. It means basically, it, it means essentially it has become. And it means everything that was to become has indeed come to pass. He goes on to say, I'm the alpha, meaning the originating beginning. And I'm the omega, meaning the end, the finish, the consummation the telos. And then our antiphonal psalm this morning, Psalm 18, 118, uh, has pointed us to the reality that time is unfolding and that it is infused with purpose or with telos. When we read the Lord is good, his love endures forever, that points to a future. When we read words like salvation or victory, we see that the Lord's right hand has pointed to events and controlled events within his unfolding story. Or if you look at our reading in 1 Corinthians 15, it assures us that Jesus was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. 
Now again, don't think of that in a proof texting sort of way. Think of it in a more narratival sort of way because narrative implies author. An author implies somebody who thinks they know what they're doing and has an end to the story in mind. And so think of according to the scriptures as something more that's like holding something up. And then there's the line in our gospel reading that when the women went to the tomb wondering who would roll it away, what did they find? It actually had been rolled away. That to the surprise of all surprises, somebody was superintending Jesus' death. And this is meant to assure us that the hand of God does indeed guide history in ways that he sees best. So this idea of telos is why the New Testament word fulfillment, you see that all over the New Testament, especially in Matthew, uh, but you see it all over Paul as well, that fulfillment is a really key biblical word because again, it's meant to remind us that someone is fulfilling something. So often, especially like in Matthew, it refers to prophecies that have come to pass in Jesus. Or in Galatians 4, Paul says that when the fullness of time had come, again, can you feel that? When the fullness of time had come, when the one who was writing the story saw that it was the right time, God sent forth his son. So that Jesus is meant to be seen to us in his life, death, and resurrection as the first fruit of an ultimate fulfillment. And this is meant then to alert us to the fact that all the bits and pieces of history are indeed moving in a certain direction. So when we think of this Easter story, I think what it's meant to do to us, like if you, it's, it's one thing to, to say, well, here's a text. Uh, it's another thing to ask what this text means, and fair enough. But it's another thing, and, off, and often a very interesting, especially discipleship move, to say, what is this text meant to do to me? What's the effect it's meant to have on me? And I think the effect here in resurrection is that something happened in and through Jesus as a result of which the world is entirely different place. And this is what we symbolize if you can all look at the flowering of the cross. I mean, a few minutes ago, that was simple, cheap wood and chicken wire. And just, again, let your gaze fall on it now. And this is what resurrection is meant to say to us, that your life, the world, might feel like cheap wood. And it might feel like a tangle that's symbolized by tangled up chicken wire. But it's not merely that. And it's not merely that for a personal reason, that there's a personal God shepherding the personality of, of human history, and that includes our persons. And that though human life might feel like old wood and chicken wire, your personal life might feel that way, just think of everything we've learned in the last decade or two about the expanding cosmos. And don't picture black holes, picture that. That's where this story is going. It will flower, it will blossom into everything good, into everything beautiful, into all that God intended when he began to create. And resurrection tells us that that world has begun. So if we were to think this morning, as we said, not of resurrection in its sort of apologetic sense of making a, a defense you know, for, for the truth of God or something, but what if we were to think of resurrection for a moment as a proof sort of for discipleship? Because it seems clear to me that one of the big things that the apostles, the first followers of Jesus, understood when he resurrected from the dead was that it vindicated what he had taught. I don't mean to say they didn't believe him. There was probably a lot of misunderstanding but that's different than not believing him or trusting him. But I just think 
you know, he was unspeakably rewriting the history of Israel. He was reinterpreting it. He was talking about all these new things that no one could fathom. And when he raised from the dead, it showed them that what he taught could be relied upon as reality. And that the things that Jesus taught were indeed an enduring doorway into the life that God has always intended for his people. There's a little devotional that some of you likely have called Centering Prayers. And one of the little snippets in that book says this, the truth is that the world emanates from your word. And your word is the occurrence of total self-giving love. And that invites the question, do you trust that? This is what happened to the disciples when he raised from the dead. It wasn't that they intellectually believed something new, it's that they came to trust it. They could see that what Jesus taught could be relied on. See, because confidence, or not, in Jesus raises issues beyond fact and truth, beyond apologetics, to something like this, to a more discipleship or formational question like this. Are you willing to give up having yourself as the ultimate point of reference in your life? So that's a very different question than do you believe Jesus rose again from the dead? And more than evidence or proofs for the resurrection is required to bring a person to the point to where they are willing to say, I'm willing to stop having myself as a primary reference for my life, right? I've told you before, I know lots of people who believe in airplanes, but they're never gonna place their confidence in one. They're never gonna get in one. And I saw the other day, have you seen that new thing that I think Musk is trying to create on, uh, well, I think on both coasts, but it seems to be farther along on the East Coast where apparently there's this, gonna be this high-speed rail where you get into this little pod and you're like flung from New York to Boston in like 30 minutes or something. Have you seen that? Well, there's no way this boy's getting in one of those little pods. <laughs> like, I believe in Musk. I've seen his pictures. I, you know, I, like, I believe he exists. I've never met him, but I, I believe he exists, and I'm perfectly willing to say that he's smart and the thing might lightly work, but with my little issues with claustrophobia, I'm not getting in some little pod that closes over you, and then you get into a tube. Like... Sorry, I'm not a hamster. I'm just, <laughs> I'm not going there. And I think the, the, the sobering other side of that coin is that's the relationship lots of people have with Jesus. Okay, I believe he rose from the dead, but I'm not gonna take my little life and its self-referentialness and place it in the life of Jesus through which God has begun his new world. It is a very different thing to say I believe in Jesus than to say I drop my little queendom, I let go of my little kingdom, and I place my life in his such that I derive my present life from the kingdom and I live it under the reign of God for the sake of becoming the kind of person for whom my piety is experienced for their good. See, those are very different things. One is just cognition, it may come or go. The other one is like the trajectory of a human life. So for instance, when the woman and Jesus' other first friends go to the tomb, they begin to learn who they are when they realize where they were in this story. That this story they could see with the empty tomb meant that it has cause and intention. And then it has a picture in your mind, capital A, capital S, it has a superintendent. Somebody superintending this story and bringing it to its completion of intention to its telos. 
And so you can see that we can have the right apologetic facts, but without an orienting story that has to tell us, we can easily live very disoriented lives full of confusion and anxiety where we begin to think and act wrongly. But I don't mean in a moral sense. I mean wrongly like, uh, can you picture a maze, like corn mazes that we have? Well, I don't know if we have them around here, but when Debbie and I lived in Idaho, we'd have corn mazes around uh, Halloween, right? And so you, you go into this maze, right, and you lose orientation. You lose sense of where you are. But if you could lift yourself up above the maze, can you picture this, and look down? Well, see, I'm not talking about morals here. I'm talking about people who lose their sense of themselves, and they lose their sense of what does it mean to navigate the time that we live in, 2018. How do we navigate all the human challenges and problems and uglinesses and beautiness? How do we navigate that? And I just want to say you can't without changing your perspective. So now, switching metaphors, this is what a telos does. It orients us towards God's future. Now, you might say to me, oh, come on, Hunter, who can think of telos in a moment of decision? Like, when I'm trying to decide, you know, whether to do this or that thing, how can I, in that split second, you know, use telos as a way of orienting my ethical decisions? And, of course, you can't. But what you can do is steep yourself in the story of God such that it becomes a reality that, for you, becomes intuitive. Like, I love music, and, you know, with my age, that means I love oldies. And so I've often wondered, how in the world did Ray Charles and Stevie Wonder learn to play the piano? Have you ever seen them sit down and play? I mean, they sit down with such dignity and poise, and I just, I don't know what to say, a confidence, a peacefulness. They, they seem completely oriented to their instrument, and I'm thinking, how? They're blind. Well, some of you may know the story that Stevie was born prematurely and uh, put in a, a very early, uh, you know, neonatal space, what is it called, an a incubator, and, at the, and back in the day, they didn't really know what they're doing like they do now, and there was too much oxygen pump, pumped into his incubator, and it caused him to go permanently blind. Well, you know, this could have discouraged, you know, his musicianship, but he pursued it, loving music and rhythm. He taught himself to play harmonica at five. You can hear that, can't you, in your brain right now? Taught himself at five to play harmonica, which encouraged his mother to sign him up for piano lessons at six. At eight, he began learning jums, drums. By 12 years old, some of you are old enough to remember, Barry Gordy found him. He became an overnight star. But he didn't just sit back and enjoy his success. Instead, he enrolled at the Michigan State School for the Blind and began to study piano professionally. Ray Charles was blind by the age of seven, and his mother sent him to a school for the blind where he learned to read and write and arrange music in Braille. Now, I've been told that is an unbelievable process. Any of you who play music, just imagine trying to take notation and timing and all that and put it into Braille. He learned to play piano and organ and sax and clarinet and trumpet. Or in one of Esther DeWall's little books, she tells the story of Michelangelo, another sort of art, working on a sculpture, and I don't know if this is a true story or not, I assume it could be, uh, that as he was working on the sculpture, somebody came by and asked him about it and just saw that Michelangelo was working on this bit by bit, and apparently Michelangelo said to the person, yes, another few days and life will break through. Just another couple little chinks or brush marks or something, and the life of this will come through. And DeWall goes on to say that this reminds us that transformation is slow and costly 
and the progress is often undramatic. But nevertheless, if someone says this is true, this is the great truth of God, he's doing something, Jesus is the first fruits of this, the the resurrection amongst other things um, um, proves that, and I'm giving myself to that just little and little. So Stevie Ray, Michelangelo, and lots of others, Helen Keller, they were just expressing really deep passion. This morning, you might want to just take a moment of genuine honesty and ask, where is your deep passion? And then, based on that deep passion, they just simply practiced their way into being new sorts of people. I mean, I play the piano, and I still can't imagine how they sit down and, without seeing anything, just put their hands on the keyboard. It's like that keyboard and their hands have become one. They're actually embodying something. And so they gave themselves just to little spiritual practices, and in so doing, became different sorts of people. And so given our spiritual blindnesses, our injuries, and our faults, that road to spiritual practice that was followed by people like Stevie and Ray, that road to practice is open who all have the passion to giving themselves to being shaped and fashioned into the way of Jesus. Well, as I said, when you come to Easter, there's always way too much to say, but maybe a way of, of concluding this little message is to a place before our minds, um, Tom Wright's effort to kind of give a, a, a quick snippet of the big picture of resurrection. Tom writes, the mission of the church is nothing more or less than the outworking in the power of the spirit of Jesus's bodily resurrection. It's the anticipation of the time when God will fill the earth with his glory. Look at that cross. He will transform the old heavens and the earth. Think of that chicken wire and cheap wood. He'll fill the earth with his glory, transform the old, the old heavens and earth into the new, and raise his children from the dead to populate and rule over the redeemed world he has made. And for me, I just say for my own life, that is a telos worth living into. And for myself, I can just say that that brings everything else in my little human life into its proper view and puts it into a proper alignment. And it has become my life's work, and it's my sense of the work that you and I are doing together. Amen.